This is Farah Nasrali, and you're listening to a special episode of Drishti Point Yoga Podcasts. I'm thrilled to be on the phone here with a global speaker, teacher, and author, Max Strom. He has developed a method called Inner Axis, which is about helping us connect deeper with ourselves and develop more intimacy and relationships with others. And he's also author of two books, A Life Worth Breathing, and There's No App for Happiness. And I'm thrilled to be here to talk to you specifically about the method you've developed called Learn to Breathe. Oh, I'm so happy to be with you again. Thank you, Farah. Um, yes, breathing is finally becoming um, part of our zeitgeist now. I think just this year, and maybe because it's been such a difficult year for so many people, uh, finally people are looking into this thing called breath work and how it can change our internal state without having to necessarily resort to medications to do that. You know, you've been traveling all over the world You've seen so many different cultures and people. Why now has breathing become so important? Well, it's really interesting because for for quite a while, if you would Google uh, the news for articles on breath work, you might not find any. You might find one a month or something like that at the most. And now you can find them almost daily worldwide. I think part of the reason is there have been quite a few scientific um, research studies done on the effects of breath work. And because of that, you know, the the news outlets pick up on these studies and um, talk show hosts start talking about them on the radio and, and even the doctors become interested themselves. And maybe this is something I should take a second look at. So now this year, for example, if you look at how many TED Talks there are on breathing, um, there are many. I I haven't counted recently, but I'd I'd say at least 30. And um, that's significant. When I did mine, I think that was the only one. And uh, I'm not saying I invented breath work by any means. I'm just saying that uh, something really is happening this year. And my TED Talk that you watched recently called uh, Breathe to Heal, uh, was kind of dormant. Not that many people were looking at it, and then suddenly it took off, and now we have almost half a million views in the last 10 months. So so something's happening, and the good news is it's go- making its way really into the medical world now to the point where I'm being invited not to, uh, only to yoga conferences but to wellness symposiums where I'll be the only person there that is not a physician, and they'll invite me to talk about... Um, well-being, internal well-being. Um, my book, There Is No App for Happiness, uh, How to Use Breath Work, Change Our Internal State. And in more and more of my workshops, I'm getting students who are psychologists, psychiatrists, neurologists, and so on. And I'm even speaking in hospitals now to doctors directly. Because in the world of physicians, the level of burnout is soaring and the level of suicide amongst physicians is also soaring. So they themselves are desperate now. The doctors themselves don't know what to do about their own condition, much less their patients. So I've been going to hospitals and speaking to groups of physicians, and they're responding very positively and inviting me back again and again. And now we're discussing a training for them so they can bring breath work to their patients directly, say, 
do this exercise. So what's also changed in modern society that is leading to the amount of interest and research on the benefits of breathing? How has our life changed in the last 50 years that is the backdrop to our interest in something that should be so simple? Well, yeah, the levels of anxiety and depression are astronomical at this point. Um, the World Health Organization predicted that by 2020, and this, by the way, was predicted in 2015, they predicted by 2020, worldwide, the leading disability would be depression and anxiety. So that's where we are globally. It's not an American issue. It's really an industrial world issue. So from Beijing to Cape Town to Berlin to New Delhi, it's the same problem. Now, it's interesting that you said 50 years, you know, not 10 years, because there were certain technologies that have really, I think, interfered with our culture. I write about this in There Is No Not For Happiness. The first one was air conditioning. Now, in Canada, this is not such a big issue. <laughs> but in, in cultures where it's hot, it's a huge issue. So the way the houses were built, let's just say in the United States, especially in the warmer climates, um, they used to be built next to trees, old trees. So you'd have shade. They'd have an attic. They'd have a basement to help cool the house or keep the house warm in the winter. And they would have porches where when it would be hot in the summer, in the evening after dinner, people sit. And people, other people would go on walks and walk by. And you'd visit. This is the way you, you would socialize with your neighbors. Kids would play in the streets, and this was the norm. Now, when air conditioning came into being, now it's hot at night. You stay inside. You don't go on the porch anymore. So we stopped visiting with our neighbors based on this new technology. Shortly thereafter, just you know, within about five years or so, TV started becoming commonplace. This was the second disruption. And now the people inside the house with air conditioning are no longer talking to each other. They're staring at the box together. They're, at least they're sitting together, but they're not really interacting as much. And then the third disruption came, and that was the Internet, where people will tell me that after dinner, the four members of the family will each go into four different rooms and get online. Now, I think the fifth one really would have to be called social media because I think that was the next stage really beyond the internet where we are drawn to stay uh, online so many hours of the day and we're not actually communicating or congregating or clustering physically with people and we really need that. And uh, now the levels of anxiety are, uh, as a psychiatrist I was uh, discussing this with the other day, told me she believes that um, People taking medicine for anxiety is at about 35% in the United States. But the additional 15%, bringing it up to 50, are people who don't take medications and maybe don't even tell the doctor they have anxiety, but they'll self-medicate with alcohol, with marijuana, or with opioids. Mm -hmm. So they're speculating that around 50% of America has some sort of anxiety issue. We're driving ourselves insane, essentially. Uh, I'm not saying that you're insane if you have anxiety, but our, our culture is living in an insane way, which is causing these high levels of anxiety and panic attack disorder. 
And now, as I said, even the physicians don't know what to do. And the medicine isn't working. So something has to give. And now people are finally saying, tell me about that breathing thing again, because what I'm doing now is not working. Mm-hmm. And breathing is something that can be learned with practice and practice. It's, it's not a That's right. It's, it's not that difficult item. to learn, really. It's... Um, now, people sometimes say, oh, it's just breathing. No, it's not just breathing. You're breathing now. They're breathing patterns. They're breathing exercises. It's like you you could move around all day in your house. It doesn't mean you're exercising that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you move in specific ways, then you start changing your body. When we do specific breathing patterns, it changes our internal state. It switches off the fight-or-flight response which is on the relaxation response. These are simple terms and causes our whole nervous system to recalibrate back to where it should be. And um, this affects us emotionally, mentally, and physically. Tell us about some of the benefits of breathing on the brain. On the brain? Well, the funny thing is you 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 can't really isolate the brain. I mean, the brain, the body, the brain, the emotions, the mind, it's all one thing. Uh, I mean, we can repair certain parts of the body or treat certain parts, but really it's all, it all, it's all affected. So, for example, if I stub my toe really badly, it's bleeding. Is it just the toe that experiences the trauma? No, my whole body experiences it. Mm-hmm. Is it just my body? No, I have an emotional response. I get upset. Maybe I get angry. Does it affect my mind? Can I concentrate or work on my taxes three minutes after I stub my toe? No, I'm distracted completely by this pain. So we can't really segregate these things out. And that's part of the problem is that that's how we've been thinking. You know, we can just treat one part of the body. And so this is why um, breath work confuses people. They say things like, well, it's just oxygen, the CO2. How would that change your mind? Because our mind is also our nervous system. And our nervous system is designed to respond to threats. And threats in a natural environment are things like noise, sudden noises especially. Um, And uh, any kind of stress is seen as a threat to our survival. And now we choose to live in stressful environments and put ourselves in um, unnatural situations and our fight or flight response is being triggered all the time but we just ignore it and uh, we'll just we'll even drink coffee to to make it worse (laughs) and then we wonder why we want to run out of the room screaming is it because that would actually be what we would do you know it's like the cat's afraid of the vacuum cleaner Um, that's how basically we should respond to our life I think sometimes uh, people laugh. I want to talk about the cat for a second because sometimes people laugh at the cats because the vacuum cleaner comes out and they run away. And I always say, do you understand that a cat's hearing is five to six times more powerful than yours? When you switch on a vacuum cleaner, it's like putting a jet engine in your house. Mm-hmm. The, the comparable example would be. And so they're doing a very rational thing, actually, to get out of there so they don't damage their ears. Um, we live such an unnatural life where we'll sit in an outdoor cafe with cars driving by eight feet away from us, you know, driving 35 miles an hour. And we learn to tune these things out. 
but our uh, autonomic nervous system does not tune it out. It constantly says that's a threat. That's something that could kill me. Mm-hmm. No, the noise itself in a city, according to specialists, uh, they say the noise that the average person experiences in a busy city like Washington, D.C. or London is enough to keep your fight or flight response going all day. Wow, that's quite remarkable to think that what is normal is actually our bodies aren't designed to handle what we consider normal. That's exactly right. That's why animals get hit by cars all the time because they evolved in a world where there were no cars, so they don't know how to respond to them, especially deer when they see them. And uh, we aren't designed to sit in a cubicle and stare at a box that has lights in it and tap something with our fingers for eight hours mm-hmm. um, and uh, make our body feel bad. And and if we start getting tired, we don't sleep, which is what our body is telling us to do. It says you should sleep now. We stimulate it with you know caffeine or something like that. So given that our lives are not conducive to generating health, um, how can breathing reset us and allow us to function? Well, it's really interesting. Um, in um, traditional Chinese medicine for a thousand years, they've associated the emotions of grief and inspiration with the lungs. That the lungs express inspiration. And as, if you think about the word, it actually means to inhale, to inspire literally means to inhale. And um, when we express grief, we cry, we sob, and this is natural, inherent behavior, not something that we're taught. We do, it's the first thing we do out of the womb, isn't it? We cry. So the lungs have always been a part of our expression of, of grief and what we do during crisis. And when we're inspired, um, our lungs are also involved. We'll gasp when we get a great idea or we see someone we haven't seen in a long time we'll go oh, look who's here you know it's a sudden inhale it's never a sudden exhale mm-hmm. and um so in chinese medicine this is one of the reasons why they developed qigong which are if you, if you translate qigong into sanskrit it would come out as pranayama pranayama and qigong are essentially the same practice they're just different techniques based on the culture they developed in so con- by controlling the breath as I mentioned earlier, you can take your state from fight or flight, from agitation, from anxiety, back to calm and equanimity. And it only takes a few minutes. I, what I tell people is it takes 10 minutes or less. So even if you're skeptical, try these exercises, and I will guarantee in 10 minutes you'll feel better. And in fact, the worse you feel when we start, the better you'll feel afterward. In other words, if you're already in a good mood, you'll feel some benefit. But if you feel terrible, and I'm talking about emotions, you'll feel much better within 10 minutes. And people are willing to give that a try. And uh, once it makes them feel better, they're willing then to do it every day. It really only takes about 20 minutes a day to uh, change your, your life so that you don't have to depend on medication so that you're not suicidal or um, frightened that you're going to have panic attacks 
when you're going into your meeting with your employees or your employer. You mentioned daily practice. How important it is, is it to commit to a disciplined practice that's regular and consistent? I think we have to consider it as a new way to live, really. Um, for example, I think Facebook has only been here since 2006. Before that, there was no Facebook. There was no social media to speak of. And now we've just accepted it. It's part of life. It doesn't take long for us to take on something new. And think about the hours per day that people will spend on social media that didn't exist nine, ten years ago. So, yeah, I think we have to not even think of it as discipline, just say this is something that I do. I'm going to take 20 minutes a day. I'm going to do this the simple movement and breathing, and I'm going to feel great when it's finished. And I'm going to sleep better. I'm not going to need sleeping pills anymore because I'm going to sleep so well because of this. So it's worth every minute. The BBC interviewed me recently when I was in London because I've been advocating that uh, employers, uh, especially in Europe, because people smoke more in Europe than they do in the U.S. or Canada, uh, that employers give their non-smokers breaks the same length of time that they give their smokers. Because if you smoke cigarettes, you're allowed to go out of the building five to seven times a shift and smoke for five to seven minutes, basically. I said, so what about the people that don't smoke? Why do they have to stay inside all day? Why don't you let them go outside or into a conference room where the weather's bad and do breathing exercises for five to seven minutes every time? Not go out and check your emails, not go out and check your social media, but to go out and do breathing exercises. If, you, if your workforce would do that, you would have a different workforce mm-hmm. because they would have more energy, they'd be more alert, they would get sick less often, and their, their morale would be higher. Mm-hmm. When I'm listening to this, I'm relating it to my own personal experience, and I'm wondering if when people engage in a regular practice like breath work, does it lead to changes in lifestyle long-term that might be unanticipated? Yes, absolutely. Um, for example, uh, when we are in crises, that's when our breath becomes really, really important. We all know that. That's why we teach women who are going to have a baby to do breathing exercises. Mm-hmm. Strangely, though, we they're really the only segment of society that the medical world has promoted breathing in. But the reason they're taught breathing is so that they won't panic. They can help regulate pain. They can stay focused and emotionally stay focused. That's what breath does. It does all those things, but not just for pregnant women. It does it for everybody. And so when you're in crisis, the next time you're in crisis, and you will be in crisis again, we all will. We will lose someone to death or disease or a relationship ending. Our own life will be threatened through one of these things. That's when our breath becomes very interesting. It's when we're on our knees emotionally that suddenly I need to breathe or I'm going to lose my mind. Or I just broke my leg. I'm in pain. 
I know how to breathe to make that pain diminish. Suddenly, our breath is everything. So for one, one of the benefits to answer your question is long-term, you have these tools that you can rely on in your worst days, your darkest hours. And your, your nervous system gets used to being regulated and calm. That becomes its default, its norm, as opposed to, you know, something you experience once you're on your holiday. I know that you, in your workshops and trainings, speak a lot about intimacy and relationships. Mm -hmm. Tell tell us about how important that is, and just being in the presence of another person who has the ability to be calm and regulate their breath, and how that. What are the benefits of that? It's so it's so very important. Um, you know, a, a leading cardiologist at Duke University gave a speech not long ago about heart health, and he was referring to the blood pump, not even the emotional heart. And he was saying, if you want to help somebody, especially who's older, that has a heart issue, the two things I can tell you that will help them the most are teach them to breathe well and to to create or reestablish their community because being around other people in, in their physical presence is something we are wired to need and to breathe, to learn to breathe can help, you know, obviously regulate their emotions so they don't go into depression or anxiety. Um, there's a short story I want to tell you that I think depicts this whole issue in a nutshell. And that is a, a lady I met when I was in the Middle East. She's a professional woman. And um, she was in her early 30s. She's a mother, married, um, super well-educated. I think she finished her schooling in London, spoke several languages, and uh, worked at a very high level, an executive level in this company. And she was asking me about my book, There Is No App for Happiness. So I told her the basic premise she listened very intently and then she said that's very interesting she said you know I'm originally from Iraq and I didn't know that because that's not where we were we were in a different country and um, she said I was in Baghdad when America America bombed in 2003 and I thought she totally just changed the subject but she didn't she was staying right on track and she said they bombed for three days and three nights Three days and three nights, they bombed and destroyed our infrastructure. So after three days, we didn't have running water or electricity or cell phone reception or Wi-Fi or any of it. And um, after the three days, we had to, of course, take care of the wounded and in some cases the dead. But after that, we really had to survive. So we built up these makeshift barbecue areas on the streets. And we had to look after each other. We had to look after the kids on the street. They'd run around playing with the rubble and look after the old people. And uh, we, we had to carry water. And it was like going back, you know, 100 years in time in terms of how we had to survive. And she said, this went on for 44 days. And then she looked at me and she said, this was the happiest time of my life. 
So we basically, to use an American expression, bombed them back to the Stone Age. And for her, and she was in her early 20s at that time, improved her life. And that's because they went back to living how we're wired to live, which is you live in a small community, a village, you know, a, block, a city block, two blocks. You look after each other's kids. You don't just look after your kids. All the mothers and brothers and sisters look after the kids. The old people are right there with you, helping as best they can. You look after them. You feed each other. You take care of the food. You take care of the basics. And when you have some downtime, you sit together. You, maybe you sing songs, you read, whatever. And then you sleep. And that's what a human being is basically wired for. And, of course, once the electricity went, came back on, that was all over. Everybody becomes isolated right next door, but totally isolated from each other. What's your hope for, <clears throat> what's your hope or biggest aspiration for the way that your work will impact, have an impact in the world? Well, the short term is I want to teach people to breathe, to do breathing patterns that they can do to improve their internal state. So they're, not, they're no longer in an emotional crisis. They're not asking the doctor for, for pills, for their emotional state, for their anxiety, for their depression, for their lack of sleep, or they're not reaching for opioids for the same issues. But that's really more short-term. Long-term, we've entered a new age, the age of digital technology. And the companies that are creating these things, their job isn't to educate on us on how much is just the right amount to use or if we should use it at all. There's no government um, department that's in charge of doing that either. So companies are as quickly as possible trying to utilize technology to create products to sell to us so they can make a lot of money. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not objecting to that. But we've reached a time where on a weekly basis, we have something new to look at and think, is this going to improve my life or not? And we have to be very judicious in choosing what technology to use and what technology to reject. What app is actually making my life easier and what app is sucking my life force? Am I serving Apple or is Apple serving me? And that's the stage we need to go. We have to decide how we want to live because using the technology, we can build a completely different type of world, keeping the best of the old world, getting rid of the stuff that was awful, and embracing some of the new world, some of the, the new technology, improving our health and so on. But that's what we have to do now. It's, we're really in a new situation that no generation, as far as we know, has ever been in before. Where we can decide how we want to live and um, and really really make changes for the better. But if we don't, if we're passive about it, if we're like sheep, it will destroy us. It will destroy our health, and uh, we will become more and more dependent on medication so that we're not suicidal and just want to give it all up. 
So I guess ultimately it's having the wisdom to <clears throat> engage in technology in a way that serves our happiness and our health. That's exactly right. And the ultimate term really, I think, is meaning. And this is something I talk about in my book, that happiness is a little bit of a vague term. Um, we need meaning. Human beings need that above all. Uh, meaningful relationships. To feel like we have a purpose in our life and that we're helping serve humanity in some way. We need that, and we need good health to do it. We need love. Everything else is secondary. And nobody is going to be ever be on their deathbed saying, you know, I'm about to die, but I just want to say, I wish I had spent more time playing video games. I wish I had spent more time watching reality TV shows. The, what people complain about, uh, complain is not the right word, what they pine about really when they're near death is I regret the time I wasted. I regret things I didn't do that I could have done. Mm -hmm. And so we can't live in a life of distraction. We have only so many years, only so many months, only so many minutes. And we, when we come close to our mortal death, we don't want to look back and say, I just, yeah, I did really good for the computer companies. They're happy with me. But uh, I don't remember most of my life because I was playing video games and watching, binge watching TV and basically avoiding an actual life. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> do you think that when, we, when we're able to breathe better and when we're able to really live in a relaxed way, that we naturally come to meaning and naturally socialize in the way we were intended to do? That's a good question. I, I think I would have to say that not everybody, because soul, souls seem to be different. There are really young souls and there are old souls. And young souls um, sometimes never grow up. They can be 60 years old and still be big kids, you know, and they just want to have fun and that's fine. I'm not certainly not against that, but I think um, it does take a certain amount of energy to have an active life, to have a dynamic life. I mean, we only have so many hours in the day. You know, we, we have to sleep, we have to eat, clean, clean ourselves, take care of the kids, work, commute. There's only so many hours of the day and sometimes minutes that we have where we can think about how do I want to improve my life? How do I want to improve the way I live, the way I feel, my marriage? That's a very small amount of time we have. And if we don't use that time, we don't really have the energy to do it at any other point. We're exhausted. So for personal growth, for self-improvement, it has to be something we really want. And to take those precious hours and use them. And uh, when we do, the payoff is extraordinary. You know, we, we become happy. Mm -hmm. And without it, we, we end up going to the doctor and saying, I've been depressed. I don't know why. And the doctor says, Maybe I have something I can help you with. Here, take this prescription. Mm -hmm. And it seems that that sort of happiness is one of those deep wells of happiness that comes from inside. The kind of happiness That's you're right. talking about. 
That's right. You know, the, the simpler our life, the better. The simpler, and that's something that's lost, uh, that we seem to have completely forgotten, because we have nothing close to simple life now, but it's by choice in first world countries. It is by choice. If we could simplify our life, we would have more time to do the things we really want to do and that bring us meaning and bring us love. I mean, what's the point of having relationships if you're just sitting next to each other scrolling through your phones? Mm-hmm. Well, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you and, and you know, what I thought would be an interview mostly about breathing has ended up much deeper than that in how you're speaking about meaning and relationships and love and connection and community. So it's a thank you. You're welcome. It is all one subject to me. And, uh, you know, we're at a point in our society now, like I said, where the doctors themselves are reaching out saying, we don't know what to do. Can you help us? Because (laughs) what we're doing isn't working. And We've never been at this place before in our society. And uh, to me, it's really the most important issue of the age, of this age right now. Mm-hmm. And breathing is just a part of it, but it's an important part. And I really encourage your listeners to find a good breathing teacher that's local and, and give it a try because I guarantee you will feel better. Thank you so much for interviewing me. It's been a pleasure, and if people want more information, they can find you on your website at maxstrom.com. That's right. And I have a lot of free uh, content on YouTube. If they look at my name on YouTube, they'll find a lot of stuff there, too. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Farah.